Our Old Testament reading for today comes from the first seven verses of the second book of Kings, chapter 4. 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels, do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured And it came about, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. That in preparation for our sermon text from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 10 to 17. Luke 9, verses 10 to 17. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, and taking them with him, He withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And the day began to decline. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging, and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them recline to eat in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all recline. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces, which they had left over, 
were picked up. Twelve baskets full. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to this reading and our understanding of it, that on the pages of Scripture we might find our life, our health, our security, our prosperity, and all that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks be to God. His kingdom stands on its own. It's a kingdom of absolute self sufficiency. Our living and true God reigns eternally as king, not over some bankrupt or struggling kingdom, not over a kingdom that's drowning in red ink, not over a kingdom that relies on trade of some sort with other kingdoms just to keep itself afloat. Our gospel text this morning reminds us that the Lord our God reigns as sovereign over a kingdom that's abounding with enough and to spare. And it's always been this way, you know. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. You may recall how the second psalm celebrates the installation of God's anointed king, his Messiah, on Zion, his holy hill, from which he reigns even today as king over all nations. This sovereign king owes the nations of the world absolutely nothing. Nothing. The nations, for their part, are indebted for their very existence to him. To Jesus Christ, reigning today from his throne in heaven, we as nations owe the tribute of absolute covenanted Loyalty, and only in the covenant framework of that loyalty can any nation of the world ever hope to find the peace and security and prosperity that we're always craving and never seeming to find. Isn't that just the point of those familiar lines of the 33rd Psalm? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Great Commission implies that this promise of blessing to the nation whose God is the Lord, this promise of blessing isn't limited to one little ethnic group located on one little strip of land situated along the farthest shore of the Mediterranean. Not at all. This gospel, this good news, is for the nations. Every nation, every people he sovereignly chooses to include is blessed. That's why the church goes out to the nations and makes disciples of them and baptizes them and teaches them to obey all that he commanded us. To be in covenant with this all-sufficient Christ is for their own good, our own good, our own peace. Because locked as they currently are in this outrageous, full-scale cultural warfare against him, these rebel nations, our own included, 
These nations continue to lurch along through history from one crisis to the next, one war to the next, one famine to the next, one disaster and pestilence to the next. But not our sovereign God and not his Christ. He reigns not over a kingdom that's always on the verge of some new crisis. Not over a kingdom of abject poverty and crushing debt. Not over a kingdom of famine or starvation or barely getting by. Because God's Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is its King. He is our King. David spelled out this this kingdom's true wealth when he wrote of his own personal experience in the 37th Psalm, I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Beloved, that's life in the glorious kingdom of God. That's life in the kingdom that Jesus and just now his apostles have been preaching all through Galilee. And it's not a life of just squeaking by, is it? It's not a life of begging bread. It's not a life of depending on others. He came that we might have life and that abundantly. You can be quite sure there's never been a kingdom like this on earth. This kingdom of God incarnate in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ simply has no equal. It stands alone. It's eternal, self-sufficient, inexhaustible. Daniel writes of this now ascended king in his seventh chapter, verse 14. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It stands alone, friends. It's self-sufficient. It's a kingdom of inexhaustible grace, of inexpressible blessing, of healing. It's a kingdom that renews the mind the intellect, the affections, the body, and the spirit. This is a kingdom and a king fully up to the meeting of the need of the moment, whatever the need may be. Early on in Scripture, the Spirit of Christ tells us through Moses that his obedient covenant people would be the head of nations and not the tail would lend to other nations and not borrow which is of course just what we'd expect of any people covenanted with the all-sufficient Lord of hosts the King of glory the 24th Psalm opens with the plain assertion that the earth is his and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it so he's not going to rend short is he He's not going to run short. There's going to be wine for the wedding. There's going to be supper for the 5,000. 
there's going to be grace abounding for all who seek it. Now obviously this gospel is very good news for the nations and its ramifications vast and far-reaching. Now how does all this that I've been saying, how does this relate to our passage this morning? Well, these great Bible doctrines have been laying out for you. Doctrines concerning God's kingdom and his kingdom, uh, king. These aren't pie-in-the-sky doctrines. They're fleshed out in the everyday experience of his covenant people, aren't they? These Gospels are eyewitness accounts of people who were actually there. People whose minds and hearts and even stomachs were filled as they lay there on the green grass beside the quiet waters of the Jordan River. We are not reading here of what someone wished were true, but what they actually discovered to be true. What they discovered to be true, by the way, contrary to all expectations. It was contrary to all expectation that Jesus would feed 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, by the way, with the material resources of five loaves and two small fish. But so it came to pass. And here's how it did. Somewhat earlier, Jesus had sent out on their practicum the entire student body of his apostolic school for preaching the kingdom. We read of that launching of the twelve into their work in the first six verses of this chapter. Out they had gone throughout the villages of Galilee in teams of two, carrying with them virtually nothing except the good news that God reigns as king. And with that news, the divinely delegated power and authority to certify it as true. Words of this amazing messianic and now apostolic ministry, of course, reached Herod Antipas, the tetrarch or petty king of Galilee in the north and also of Perea, region farther south and on the far side of the Jordan. We don't know just how long the apostles were out preaching in the towns and villages of Galilee, but here we see they've returned to Jesus and they've made their report. Jesus then does another very wise and compassionate thing. The apostles had returned, they'd reported, and now Jesus immediately takes the whole school of apostles on a retreat across the Jordan River in the vicinity of Bethsaida. This retreat is wise for two reasons at least. First of all, remember that the apostles had just been busy preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God all through Galilee. Glorious work it was with glorious results. But you've got to bear it in mind that these are still young men and boys. They're subject to all the personal pride and foolishness of young men and boys. They need some time away with Jesus to reflect, 
some time away with them to work through all that God had just done through their labors, to put everything in perspective. The glory of God, the privilege of service in his kingdom, and so on. They've got to sort through these things. A second reason this apostolic retreat was wise is that the move from Capernaum west of the Jordan across the river eastward to Bethsaida represents a change of legal jurisdiction. As long as they remained anywhere there in Galilee, which was on the west of the Jordan, they were within Herod's political jurisdiction, which would be no place for a retreat, no place to find some peace and quiet, because Herod, as we saw last time, Herod was by now keenly interested in this movement. He's seeking to see Jesus. And you can be sure Herod isn't going to come to him. That's not how Herod played the game. He'd send someone to apprehend Jesus, someone to interrupt his ongoing ministry and force a premature crisis. That's what Herod would have done. So they go on this retreat. Now, did the retreat pan out for them? Of course not. Of course not. The crowds of Galilee learn about their withdrawal across the river, and they follow them, swelling the local population of Bethsaida to thousands. So the vacation plans go out the window because Jesus isn't a man who turns needy people away. Their retreat's cut short because of what we find in verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Isn't that wonderful? He welcomed them. He welcomed them. All these people who just ruined his plans, ruined his vacation, ruined his opportunity to help the apostles process things, he welcomed them and graciously kept on doing what he'd been doing all along. So a resurgence of ministry fills the day that was intended for rest and reflection. That day wears on. Thousands heard and saw the kingdom and the power and the glory of God that day of resurgent ministry. And now it's late afternoon and nothing seems to be winding down. Still they come. And no one seems to be heading the other direction. No one seems to be heading back toward the parking lot. No one's going home. And so the apostles are beginning to look at their watches and do some very practical calculating of time and distance and logistics. Late in the day, they come to Jesus and they make what seems to them to be a very reasonable recommendation. Listen, Master, Lord, 
send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we're here in a desolate place. So, clearly, this isn't Bethsaida proper. Bethsaida, the town, might have been fine for the 13 of them on retreat, but no place in town's big enough to hold this growing crowd of thousands, so by this time they've moved out beyond the city limits. Here on the outskirts of town there's plenty of room, plenty of wide open space, fresh air, green grass, but there aren't any motels, there aren't any diners, there aren't any convenience stores, so their recommendation to Jesus seems very reasonable, even compassionate. But you see how the story develops. Their recommendation is reasonable. It is compassionate. They want the people to be fed and rested for the next day. But sending the people off to fend for themselves in the gathering darkness would tend to blunt the teaching point being keenly made all day. That this glorious kingdom of God now present among you is all-sufficient It stands alone. It needs no propping up by the efforts of men. God is able to prepare a table in the wilderness. He was able back in the days of the wilderness wanderings, and he still is. So, you give them something to eat. And you know how the rest of the story unfolds. The logistical calculations prove the sheer human impossibility of feeding well over 5,000 people that late in the day. We don't have it. We can't get it. We have no resources of time or money or, frankly, energy. After all, it's been a very long day already. In fact, it's been a very long week or two. We came here across the river to get some R&R, didn't we? Rest and reflection. And here the pace of ministry has just gone up exponentially. But the kingdom of God is all sufficient. It depends not upon men. And the provision of God for his people depends not upon the availability of motels and hotels and restaurants and grocery stores. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All the earlier preaching of God's kingdom had been certified by such things as healings and the casting out of demons, hadn't it? People had been coming to Jesus with very specific needs, if not unique, then at least not common to everyone. He'd been helping people, for instance, with fevers and leprosy and desperate illnesses and demons. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 takes the demonstration of God's gracious kingdom to the next level because by it he shows himself to be not the God of last resort, Not the God of those with special needs only, those who can't meet them otherwise. He's the one who meets your ordinary, everyday needs. 
He supplies her daily bread. It's possible he'll use the ordinary means of a grocery store or restaurant to feed you, or maybe he won't, because he's not constrained to do so. In the beginning, after all, with a word he spoke worlds into being. The kingdom of God, of which our Lord Jesus Christ is King, stands alone. It's absolutely self-sufficient, unsupported by the frantic efforts of tired, worn-out, worried men. Ordinarily, he uses the means of human labor to attain the end of human comfort, but there's absolutely nothing constraining him to do so. He's God. He made us. He sustains us. He provides for us. He'll set his people, perhaps two million strong, at table in the wilderness. He'll send them bread from heaven, never seen before or since. He'll drive the quail in to fall three feet deep within the camp. He'll order the ravens to bring his prophet food if he chooses to do so. He'll fill a widow's jar with oil that never runs out until the vessels that hold it do. And he'll feed a crowd of thousands who leave behind more leftovers than they started with. For nothing shall be impossible with him. Nothing will be impossible. One final observation and we're done. I want you to notice the Lord's concern for renewing and replenishing the whole man. Many of us who grew up in the Reformed tradition tend to focus on biblical doctrine, and we should. That's the key to understanding everything else. But all the examples I just cited from the pages of the Bible show us God's interest in the whole spectrum of human needs. Biblical Christianity centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, our King, biblical Christianity addresses not only the mind, but the whole human experience. Verses 16 and 17 spell out for us a wonderful sign of his regal provision for all who come believing. I urge you not to stumble over it as though it couldn't possibly have been this way. So it was then, so it is now, and so it will always be. The angel Gabriel, you remember, was the first to point it out to us way back in chapter 1. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so once again, the ancient psalm of David is confirmed from his generation to this one reclining on the grassy field in groups of 50, to our own experience today. It's not just poetry. It's reality. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen.